Welcome back to the Biblical History Center podcast. I am your executive director, Carlos Cantu, and I'm joined always by our program director, Ms. Christy Barker. Christy, you there? Hi, guys. I feel like every time I start the podcast, I always say, Christy, you there? And I'm always here. (laughs) Which is a good thing. Now, those of you that love listening to our podcast because we read your comments and we're getting feedback. One, we thank you for listening. But number two, as you all remember, last podcast, our media coordinator, Brian Bullibush, was leaving us, unfortunately, and we wished him well. And we know he's doing well now. But we have brought in a special guest who will not only be a guest today, but will probably be a consistent regular moving into this new era is Miss Emily Pritchett. Miss Emily, are you there? Sure am. How y'all doing? <laughs> Miss Emily comes to us from Alabama, which is right next door. If you've been to the Biblical History Center, we're located very close to the border of Georgia and Alabama. And she is our Associate Director of Programming and Education. And Miss Emily, you want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself here in the next, I'd say, what, 30, 45 seconds? Yeah. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Christy, for uh, having me on here uh, first off. Uh, So like Carlos said, I am originally from Alabama. I'm originally from Boaz, Alabama. And for those of you that don't know the geography. Roll Tide. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) But I am from Boaz, uh, which is northern Alabama. So at the edge of the Appalachians. But I attended Auburn University. So I have to say War Eagle. There you go. I figured you were going to correct me on that. (laughs) So I graduated from Auburn with my anthropology degree. I then graduated from a Southwestern Seminary with my archaeology degree. And then just this past spring, I have graduated with my certificate in museum studies from Auburn University in Montgomery. So that's my background. But I've been married to my husband, Aaron. It will be going on at five years. And then I have a one-year-old daughter. So lots of wonderful things happening. Beautiful baby girl. Well, Emily, I tell you, I know for a fact that we'll continue to hear a little bit more about your journey. I don't think we've talked much about Christie's excavations as well as Emily. I think we'll set a date where we'll really get into depth and uh, talk about those things as we move further into our podcast. But today, one, again, we welcome Emily. Christy, glad you're here. But today we've got a few subjects. I would say the first one is a little juicy because it can be used in various ways. Can I say that, Christy? Can I say that it's kind of (laughs) juicy? I mean, literally, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I figured we kicked that off. So, Christy, tell me about this. You wanted to discuss it in this week's podcast, and I'm all for that, especially with the many, many properties that this specific item comes with. So before I continue blabbering on, Christy, go ahead and introduce our first topic for today, the discussion. So the first thing we're going to be talking about today is the Balm of Gilead. There is a team of scholars that have actually been searching for a while of what exactly is the Balm of Gilead. You know, it's mentioned in Genesis a few times, Jeremiah, um, the book of Ezekiel. I personally remember it the most from that old hymn, you know, there is a balm in Gilead. And so they've been trying to figure out for a while, what on earth exactly is that? That's, um, that's considered the populus balsamifera. <laughs> <laughs> and so scholars actually think they possibly have identified what the balm of Gilead is. 
It's a tree resin that is mainly extracted from a type of tree called the Atlantic pistachio, which can be found throughout Israel. And they also used to be found in Gilead. And they were used for several medicinal purposes, apparently. According to these scholars, they can be used for treating stomach ulcers, relieving throat infections, not curing them, but just relieving the pain, lowering your cholesterol, alleviating stress. And ironically now, too, the article that I found about these scholars details that you can't actually find this balm in Gilead anymore. The pistachio trees there stopped producing enough to make the balm. But it's just really fascinating that we now know what this is and what it does. It seems like a mild anti-inflammatory. Yeah, I'm looking at the resin now because I started digging and it seems like a very heavy resin. Did you notice that? It's almost like a wax. Well, they have to mix it with wax in order to make it usable because what it is, is it's tree sap. So if you were just to use it straight, it would be like rubbing maple syrup or something like that on yourself. It would be a big mess, right? No one wants that sticky mess. So if you want to apply it externally, then you would have to mix it with wax first in order to make it effective. Emily, have you ever used some of this? This would have come in handy before my gallbladder surgery. I will say that. (laughs) Did you catch that? That was good. That was good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. No, it is a very, uh, very insightful for sure as how they were using. Now, I went a little deeper and it seems that not only, of course, as we just mentioned, the medicinal powers within that, but a lot of people, from what I've gathered in the ancient world, this was also used towards uh, protection and spiritual cleansing among cultures even today. You caught any of that, Christy, in your research on this? I didn't really look into the more mystical side of it. I just looked into the more practical side of it. But I do know that it wasn't just used in ancient Israel. It was also used in Egyptian culture, Greek, Roman, even some Arabic texts as well. We see it in what would have been called Arabia, what is now Yemen. And also it's listed as an incense, which is interesting. Um, So it seems like it's very similar to the frankincense that we also see as a biblical tree resin that has medicinal properties. And frankincense is also very anti-inflammatory. Well, I wanted to certainly, as I mentioned earlier to Christy, I said, well, what order do we want to talk about these topics? And that's why I said that we'll start with the juicy one and move into that next item. I feel like the next subject is even more juicier. Can I even say that? Is that fair to say, Emily? I think so. Emily, tell me about, I mean, what is happening after 26 years? Let's talk a little bit about this anchor. Well, I dug a little bit deeper into this one, but I will preface by saying this. I don't know if there's a proper term to say this, but the antiquities market in Jerusalem is a thriving uh, market. (laughs) Market, yes. (laughs) Yes. And unfortunately, you do have some artifacts that are taken from sites, sold specifically for profit, mostly. For moment, I thought they were borrowed and later brought back. I'm not. No. <laughs> no. I still believe in humanity. Yes, I do too. But 
I'm a little bit more blunt with my words. Right, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Emily. No, you're fine. But from what I can tell from this, so these artifacts are dug out of context from sites. They're stolen. They are then put on the antiquities market to be sold uh, for tourists. And the Israeli Antiquities Authority has been cracking down really hard on this. They are encouraging not only their local people, but also tourists as well to turn in any kind of antiquities that they might find over to the authority. And with this anchor, the fact that this guy kept it for 26 years and now he's finally turning it over. I mean, I'm kind of uh, mixed about this Mm. because I'm like, well, I'm glad you're returning it. But why after 26 years, why did you have to wait for a countrywide crackdown to finally give up your artifact? But from what also when I dug into this, the individual had been, quote unquote, preserving the anchor. So cleaning it, you know, to the best of his ability, probably with whatever he had in order to make it really nice. It might have been a display piece with wherever he worked or in his home. I don't know for sure. But from what I could tell, the anchor is any, t- any type of object you get, whether it is terrestrial or aquatic, leave the preservation to the experts. There is a reason they're an expert in the field that they are in. And plus, you know, certain types of cleaners have chemicals in them that can damage too much. They say that the anchor is dated to the Roman period. It's 1700 years old. So roughly first century BC until third century AD. And that's what they believe that the dates to the anchor, just roughly not only looking at it, but also with whatever preservation. It's quite the responsibility, a heavy responsibility, the IAA constantly enforcing, you know, the antiquity laws conducting investigation and recovering stolen art. But you can just imagine the workload that they get, the things that come across their desk. It is impressive what they are constantly having to do to reacquire, right? And to, you know, go after those who have conducted illegal excavation and looting at archaeological sites. I mean, that's a huge concern, not only for them, but even for us today. Was there a value put on this? Emily, by any chance, as to what kind of a value it had on this anchor? From what I could tell, it didn't seem to have a monetary value. So I think most of the value was more centered towards let's preserve it, let's take it back and, you know, put it in a place where it's going to be taken care of properly. When I dug deeper, I didn't see any type of uh, price. Something like this, you know, it didn't have a price on it in the article because, again, he, he didn't buy it and it, he found it and it was being yeah. given back to the IAA. So right. there was no cost involved for either party on this. But something like this in the markets that I've seen could easily go for a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, it looks the word I keep hitting over and over every time I see him holding it, the individual who returned it. I'm guessing it's quite an impressive piece. And Christy, yeah, as, as Emily is talking, I've noticed... You're very passionate about the black market when it comes to artifacts uh, in Israel, as we all are, of course. But I mean, when you saw this, I mean, I know it made your blood boil for sure. It didn't necessarily make my blood boil because like, I get it, you know, 
You want to be Indiana Jones and find something cool and you want to be that person. What makes my blood boil is when they try and sell it or make a profit off of it, like a treasure hunter or something like that. So this actually kind of brought me some joy, like, okay, this piece of history, even though it was removed from context, it's been preserved. And I'm thankful for that. And so now we have the opportunity to learn. And we know, too, the approximate location where it was found in the Mediterranean, found in a diving expedition off of Palahim Beach. In 1996. So, you know, that gives us a good general idea of if we can date the anchor, which they have, what's it part of small fishing vessel or a small pleasure boat, something like that during the Roman era. It's a beautiful piece. Brought me more joy than anger, to be honest. It would have made me angry if, you know, they had been trying to flip it or something like that. I always just get excited when we can preserve these pieces of history and learn from them before they're lost. I mean, that's why we all on this podcast and those of you that are listening, I mean, that's why we're all here, right? Is to continue to encourage the preservation of historic items uh, for our education, right? So we can learn and preserve previous cultures and their insights. And what's interesting even more is, as we were discussing our podcast and what we were going to look at and Christy bringing these topics you know, as we continue to educate ourselves and we continue to educate you through this podcast, we continue to learn. And as we discover these items on the anchors, we're also learning additional information on Canaanite burial customs. Did you guys catch that as well? I can't wait to discuss this one on too. It's a really cool fact about the next article we're about to discuss with the Canaanite burials. In my seminary days, I actually did a paper regarding Pithoi jar burials. And unfortunately, I did not get that paper published. I should have gotten it published, even though my writing was very atrocious. In my opinion, it was very atrocious at the time. You could always redo it. We could always figure that out. Exactly. I can always redo it. But yeah, when I look at the jar burials, it reminded me of my paper and the jar burials, the fact that these are brand new, like they've just been unearthed at Megiddo. I mean, wow. It's basically some of the same. They've also found some other burials just like this in another portion of Megiddo. Megiddo is a huge site. Well, and just to emphasize a little bit the significance of this, you know, we know a lot about Egyptian burial. We're all, you know, pretty familiar with the whole King Tut, Howard Carter excavation. We know a lot about Mesopotamian burial because of excavations in Ur and other Mesopotamian cities. But very little up until this point has been known about Canaanite burial. And so the fact that they uncovered an entire Canaanite cemetery in Tel Megiddo just, you know, busted that wide open. It's right up your alley, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Megiddo is such a cool site already to begin with. And so... The fact that now added to the list of the cool things at Megiddo, we can now add a Canaanite cemetery where we understand the funerary practices and function a little bit better is just amazing and awesome. I think that's what you're referring to, Emily. <laughs> yes, exactly. Christy hit it right on the head. But I mean, Megiddo and sites like it, like Gezer and Hatsor, they were not just specifically only Canaanite people lived here. There has been evidence found of Israelites and Canaanites living amongst each other in the same communities. I think one of my big questions 
is, you know, are these strictly Canaanite people or would they be, you know, possibly Israelite who worshiped the Canaanite gods and then adopted the Canaanite ways of life from worshiping those gods? I've just got so many questions just for the people who found this, you know, what other stuff that they have, you know, on these. A lot of that will probably come out later, too, just Mm -hmm. because this is just, you know, they literally just found this like a week or two ago. It's one of those things where, I mean, I don't know about on what was found at the very bottom. And for those of you that are listening, if you're interested, we can certainly put those links or just do a Google search on Canaanite burial customs or one out for the departed, I believe is what the article we're discussing mentions. If you're interested, I mean, some of the pieces are just absolutely gorgeous. They are beautiful. I mean, some are damaged for sure, which is to be expected. But I mean, yeah, no, no, no I'm sorry, Chrissy. I just wanted to put that information out there for those that are listening and they're wanting to see more of what was found in these jars. I mean, the thing with, too, you know, looking at an archaeological discovery so early is there are going to be lots of questions. You know, like I said, this was just discovered a week or two ago. and This analysis of the burial practices and it being Canaanite and everything like that is just the best guess of the archaeologist in the field at the moment. Six months from now, it could be like, oh, well, this cluster here of burials was Canaanite. And then this cluster over here was Israelite. Or you might find something like that. Or or once the genetic testing comes back, they might be able to tell us a little bit more information. I know at least the dig that I was on back in 2017, you know, we were looking at things as they came out of the ground and we all thought we had one assumption and then six months later you know that was debunked it was no more it was impossible you know kind of thing who knows what we're gonna figure out about this site you know just responding to emily's questions which are great questions to ask that's a question that any good archaeologist should be asking we probably won't know now but maybe we'll find something out in six months we'll hear something else i'm definitely keeping my eye on the news and um who was the publisher of this article? Was it? It was the Biblical Archaeology <laughs> Review. Yeah, I'll be keeping my eye on Bar. I think I have colleagues right now that are at Telburna. So if they know of anything about it, I might be talking with them very closely to see if they might be working, maybe even working with some of the archaeologists there as well. Because they're, you know, if you're at a certain site, there's a really high probability that they can share information and go back and be like, oh, well, we found this at our site. Did you find this at your site? Does it coincide? Is it different, et cetera? Have they found anything or have they just started? I haven't communicated with them since season has begun, but I'll have to get into contact with them as soon as possible. I mean, no doubt they've probably already heard about it, but I'm definitely going to ask for their theory if they think that this is Canaanite or if they might think this is something else. I know that from past articles and stuff that I have read, I do know that in some cases, The Philistines and the Hittites also had pithoi jar burials. It could be Canaanite, but it could be Philistine. It also could be a Hittite. It's like what Christy said. We're going to have to, you know, really pay attention and see what the experts and those that are working with this particular group of deceased, what all of the stuff is going to be looked at in the next few months. So only the next few months will tell. That's the great thing about Barr. And they always tend to circle back and they reference what they had uncovered. I do like that. I love that about Barr. I think that's one of the things that me and Chrissy, that's why we support Barr in even our own museum. 
as we, you know, here uh, allow those resources to be used. And Emily, you even put together the catalog for it. So yeah, I'm more than hopeful that Barr will circle back on this if there is additional information on it. But folks, we thank you so very much for listening. I know we're running out of time here. We want to thank you for always supporting the Biblical History Center and some of the things that we've got going on here in the month of June. It is slightly uh, hot, uh, slightly hot, not too hot. It is a little hot. Our reservations have uh, slowly kind of maintained. They haven't really dropped like what we usually see in the summer. Uh, we've got our ancient world tours happening now all the way through October 31st, if that's correct. And Christy, feel free. Or Emily, feel free to step in as I'm breaking these down. We also do want to mention, we want to encourage you to save the date. Uh, we, the Biblical History Center, uh, we are presenting History in the Making by welcoming executive producers of The Chosen, Mr. Chad Gunderson and Chris Yuen. And they will be joining us here at the Biblical History Center on September 21st, where they will break down uh, some of the challenges that they've had in Hollywood, some of the victories they've encountered as they have brought this amazing series to the world. And now we get to hear directly from these executive producers as to, you know, what happened or where are you at or what's your vision? Uh, where are you going? Because The Chosen has really inspired millions around the world. And uh, of course, with the gospel, presenting the gospel. Uh, so we want to encourage you for that. We also have an upcoming event uh, where it is a virtual lecture, and this is part two of How the Bible Came to Us. Our special guest, Pastor Adam Camp, who is also a board member of the Biblical History Center, will present on August the 4th at 6 p.m., and our steam days are still left for the rest of the year. I believe the program department, who is with us today, uh, is currently putting together next year's Steam Days since they have been incredibly successful for us here in the center. And as always, if you're interested in doing our 7 a.m. store, that is always available. Those have special reservations as there is a special docent that is required for that. Without further ado, my name is Carlos Kintu, the executive director here with Miss Christy Barker, Miss Emily Pritchett, and we thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We'll see you at the next one.